Hello and welcome to another episode of Leisure Time with Duncan and Jonathan. It's our fourth season premiere. Um, this was originally going to be a couple weeks ago, but situation um, came something came up. So and we also had to change the top subject matter because of availability for multiple parties. All right. So in, in this case, yeah, and it Yeah, and as always, I am Duncan. As always, I'm Jonathan. And this time, Jonathan was the one who inspired this particular subject matter, at least. Um, has been in- most enthusiastic about it. <laughs> so, I'll let him take the lead here. talking about the film noir subgenre, or the mystery subgenre in general, just because, you know, it's a subgenre I'm very familiar with in multiple, you know, multiple ways. So this is, you know, exciting to talk about. Yes. And we're going to get, let's get the obvious ones out of the way, because we're going to be touching on um, Humphrey Humphrey Bogart is um, one of the main people who come to mind when you think film noir, because of the fact that he did, he he played Sam Spade, he played Philip Marlowe, um, Casablanca can sort of qualify <laughs> too. Yeah, I mean Casablanca is in those in that weird gray area because you could look at it as a film noir, but at the same time, if you viewed it as a romantic movie, it would make a lot of sense. Hmm. Always been one of those things that's difficult to classify. Just like Crossfire, you know, in that situation, that film. Is it a film noir? Is it a military drama? Is it a mystery in general? My guess is it's all three. One of my personal favorites, actually, from that subgenre. And film noir is one of those subgenres that is prevalent in pop culture, but at the same time, it's kind of one of those things that you have to know somebody to be in and know about it because. It pops up in uh, mainstream pop culture from time to time, but it's not consistent. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things you see references here and there, but that's about it. Yeah, especially, um, I want to say, especially since the. The 70s was really the last time it had a proper heyday. Yeah, I want to say that was right about the time. Where film noir started phasing out, and we started to see more of, you know, the action genre kind of coming to the forefront, and that's what people wanted to see. You know, that along with martial arts, you know, the martial arts genre really, you know, experienced the craze. Oh yes, since my film noir kind of sputtered out a little bit. <laughs> Have a very unique way of speaking. I can't quite put my finger 
what it is, but you'll know what we hear. Yeah, the monologue, the, tra the traditional monologue. <laughs> and then all they say is see after everything. Like, it's a certain way. It's a certain, <clears throat> a certain way you have to phrase your sentences. Because you're going to put C on the end of it. Yeah, see? You see all that sort of thing. Yeah, it's always like um, like vampire movies and blah blah blah. <laughs> right, or you know how in um, Jamaican patois, let's say, a certain phrase that you'll hear more than that. Yeah, like what one and you know big things, you know, because the H is silent in that case. So it's it's one of those things where certain phrases from that time period have lasted and then others have kind of fallen out of favor like the term gumshoe you really don't hear that much anymore unless they're trying to do a homage to yeah, you know, that whole yeah. subgenre yeah, which is why it was always fun to, going back as I've been going through the um, original um, Quantum Leap <laughs> so those are the, uh, re those are the um, sequel series that's currently airing its first season. Um, it's not officially been renewed for a second one, but I, but I'm, but they clearly have a plan in place to, <laughs> but anyway, um, and, and, and surprisingly enough, there was only one noir, um, episode in that show's run, and it was in the first season. <laughs> Wait, that is surprising, especially given how much material it's draw from, which yeah. is a nice segue into our next topic we're going to talk about, which is the whole called fiction subgenre. Now, we're not talking about the, the Tarantino film here. No, no, no. Not directly, anyway. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We will get to the Tarantino episode at some point, though, so be on the lookout for that. What we're speaking on is the uh, subgenre that, for the most part, in the 30s, 40s, I'm going to say, even up to the, you know, 50s and 60s, where they were print up novels like left and right. It seemed to be, you know, at one point they were called dime store novels because, you know, they were cheap. So, you know, if you had a little money in your pocket, you go into the store and you could get some of those novels. Yeah, and it was not just mystery or um, noir style stuff. It was also science fiction. Did a lot of, but had a lot of pulp. Um, but that's where space opera got its start. Um, we talked about like uh, like last year. We talked about Zorro. That's where he got right. started. Um, story started out. Um, and Conan the Barbarian, which was which is coming. We, we promise we're not we're going to get there eventually. We just don't know when because as we're trying to get. Um, we're trying to get more guest spots, including uh, including at least one parent on both of our end. Um, oh, and a couple of cousins on my end have expressed interest. Main, I think the main issue with Pulp Fiction was oversaturation, because at one yep. point it was just like... And they were cheaply made, so the quality kind of wavered a bit. You understand? Like, it wasn't... Oh, yeah. every novel I buy is going to be top-notch stuff. No. Yeah, it you know, was cheap. Just to be flat out, you know, not good. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually brought up in the um, introduction to um, the Conan the Barbarian reprints. 
um, that are now about 20 years old. <laughs> Let that sink in. Um, and it's actually brought up in the introduction that, um, that, that now Robert E. Howard is a talented writer, or was a talented writer, because he's been dead for 70 odd, he's been dead for just shy of 80 years now. Um, because he committed suicide in 1937, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I didn't even know that. So, something new. I didn't know. I knew he was deceased, but I didn't know how he left. Yeah. Yeah, he um, only had like a 15-year career. It was actually quite astounding how much he was able to put out. Because he had Conan, he had Cole, he had um, Solomon Kane, he had um, a bunch of stuff with... Um, he collaborated with... Um, H.P. Lovecraft. Um, a couple of those. Um, in fact, Conan the Barbarian is part of the Cthulhu mythos. It's officially recognized. As that because... The topic is, you know, as many references that have been throughout pop culture is very vast, and I don't think people really know just how you know, deep that will goes, so to speak. Yeah, like I said, we'll have Kai waiting on that one when we get to that when we get to that one. She has the um, complete, um, since I got her for a birthday present, I, I think it was about eight years ago, I forget something when I did it, but I got her as a birthday present one of the years when she was in Oregon. I got her um, a volume of... Um, of all of Lovecraft's standalone works from that, <laughs> so nothing to do with that. like I said, Howard's input was involved. Um, none of the um, other ones who uh, who are also collaborating. It's a shared universe, you might think. Okay, but anyway, we're off topic. Okay, um, yeah, it's okay, and like I said, now yeah, it's, they call it pulp fiction because it's because the paper. Well, it's not exactly um, high quality. <laughs> it, was, right. it was what was it left over from newsprint, if memory serves. It kind of tells you what you're in for as soon as you hear the name because you kind of know, like, okay, you just have to take them for what they are. Yep, yep, yep. You really yeah, you're not going to see any color surprise when it's stuff is. You're take well, it for what it is, enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. Um, which, which brings us to, um, the radio. <laughs> because radio, especially, I'm going to say, in the golden age of entertainment, that was, you know, because TV, you know, was still relatively new when it did arrive on the scene. So, you know, prior to that, if you wanted to have, you know, entertainment, the radio was going to be your main source of that. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of times, more often than not, a lot of the radio dramas are centered around, you know, mysteries. Not always. 
recently, um, as in like just this past Friday, I got um, the surviving what what is surviving of the first season of the of CBS Radio's um, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, which is based on <laughs> basically the other noir detective that's as well known as Sam Spade. <laughs> for the Conan episode because it's actually more relevant than that. But anyway. Um, it involves Arnold Schwarzenegger and how he got cast in the role. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's leave it at that. Okay. Um, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's... Actually, it's very interesting because, um, because Raymond Chandler is actually the... Uh, Raymond Chandler, DeShiel Hammett, and like mentioned Robert E. Howard, and um, even Justin McCulley, who's nowadays is more famously... It's more better associated with Zorro and his Western output than, um, that he, he was also in on this side of the, um, he also did a lot of crime fiction and, um, hard-boiled mystery writing. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, and it's also, it's really fun is, um, is that Raymond Chandler is actually... Because I mean, is the um, because the internal monologue that you that is, is the standard for the um, noir detectives, the hardball detectives have their monologue. That's actually referred to in the industry as Chandler esque. <laughs> so. Which that that's, that speaks to his you know skill at what he did, where you know film noir. Like I don't care if you watch Scarlet Street, I don't care if you watch Kansas City Confidential. I'm not. Like, <laughs> you're gonna hear, you know, a lot of monologue and a lot of voiceover. That that is a classic film noir element. If you had a voiceover, you pretty much know what genre you watch. Or you can narrow it down anyway. I mean. Yeah, or you can narrow it down because. You know, you don't really see too many monologues in sci-fi. I mean, not saying it can't ever happen, but nine times out of ten, the hard-boiled uh, subgenre, you're gonna see it. It's prevalent. Yeah, I mean, as it what the segment is. Yeah, I mean, there's also um, and there's also one um story which Jonathan and I've told you about this one, but I don't know if you heard it. But there's some. There's this, um, there's this, it started as a novella, but it was expanded into a novel proper. Um, it was, um, it was called, it's, the title of the book is Red Planet Blues. And it's, um, and it's this classic, um, 
hard-boiled detective setup, but it's on Mars in about a century in the future from our perspective. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically it's like it's like The Martian, but um, with Sam Spade <laughs> thrown in. <laughs> Which, which is a nice segue into our next point too. That you know, even for a lot of current stuff, you know, see the film like Gun yep. Baby Gun, for example. That's a new version of you know that same film, The Raw Trope. Very well done, by the way. Oh yes, <laughs> that, that's one of my favorite ones. I haven't watched it in a while, but I definitely remember liking it, and I definitely uh, remember seeing that it's based on you know a lot of the classic film or tropes just in a more current uh, current code of pain I guess I would say yeah I mean and of course you had a Spongebob episode of Squid Noir which you know that that whole thing is true to the that that's where the title comes from it's the whole trip yep 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 you know yeah I mean I still yeah okay let's bring that up because you're right a lot of cartoons from the Really starting from the, uh, it was really started getting, getting prevalent in let's say the um, 80s through, really through today. You're going to have at least a handful of, um, it's fewer and far between. It's few and far between where you don't come across a at least one noir episode per first run of a given show. <laughs> Yeah, because even on Doug, they had that whole situation where BB's uh, radio, you know, went missing, and then Doug's, you know, snooping around, and yeah, being like a film noir character. And then there was at least one episode where um, where Porkchop got, either ran away or um, got dognapped, I forget the details. <laughs> Yeah, and he and he broke out the same basic character in the in the and and yeah, now it doesn't yeah, happen yeah. all the time, but there are times where, but for the most part, um, in this setup, um, they also go they, if the show in question is normally in color, it goes to monochrome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and also it goes back to that whole idea of you know cartoons, especially back in the eighties, all the way to the Right. You know, I'm going to say the late 90s where, not saying you don't have current examples, but I'm saying where you kind of hit both the kids and adults. <laughs> like, you have some jokes that are going to work well with the kids, and you have references that are going to fly over the kids' head, but the adults get it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you usually do cater to the uh, fact that, especially for, I mean, that's why, um, I mean, that's why, uh, the brony effect got so took off so quickly because they had the the fathers and uncles and grandfathers were watching with their kid with with the girls, and it just exploded into its own thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. Let's see here. All right. So let's talk about um the the um title that got um the two of us back into this um as adults. Let's talk about L.A. Noir here for a bit. Oh, we gotta talk about L.A. Noir because, for one, it's a game that's definitely driven by choices. And one thing you should mention is that sometimes you work on a specific case. It's not always 
not the same as real police work. But, you know, you do have that realistic element where, you know, everything's not all put away in 45 minutes. <laughs> no. Yeah, LA, I think that's probably what made people flock to was LA Noir that and also because it stood out. I mean, obviously you have GTA and True Crime, Streets of LA and stuff like that. But their mechanics and LA Noir are so different from those other two because GTA is more open world. Yep. You know, it's more that sandbox thing. It's just like whatever you want to get into. LA Noir is you have choices, but at the same time it's to a point. <laughs> you know, it's to a point. You can't just be out here stealing cars like you would in GTA because that's not what it's for. No, there is a no, there is a mechanic where you can um commandeer a car. <laughs> You could, but I'm saying the main focus is no. the cases themselves or that situation where you have to uh, deal with certain cases. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Well, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's also the fact that now there is there is a linear story here. And so, um, whereas you do have, so... There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not to the extent of, say, the first. Yeah, so the choices do not impact it to, this, to the level of, say, um, the Mass Effect trilogy, or at least the first three quarters of it, because it's really the end game in that one, which we'll get to in our <laughs> review of it eventually. But at this point, it's well known enough that it's not spoiling anything for anyone who has not been under a rock for the last 15, who has not been under a rock for the last 11 years, give or take a couple months now. Um, where Mass Effect 3, Mass Effect 3's ending is, was controversial enough at its first release that I think it's well, that it's easy enough to just, you can find it even by, stumble across it by accident. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean. It is. The controversy on that front. The Sims as well, because the Sims, that's basically Sims and Animal Crossing. They they all basically hand in whatever you want. Yeah, but anyway, um, but back yeah, LA Noir. Uh, yeah, so there are some choices, and you, and it really comes down to who gets um interrogated and to what extent, at least for the um. For homicide, anyway, because with the when he's a patrol, when Phelps is a patrolman, it's just it's just linear, get through everything, and just get promoted to detective. <laughs> pretty much it. Um, How long did you say it took you to complete LA Noir once you first got through? Ooh, I think it was the better part of. First, I got so I got it in January of eighteen. I think I finished it. Um, finally finished it by around um, August of that year. So about six or seven months, <laughs> give or take a couple weeks. But that was because of all the other stuff that was going on at the time, more so than anything. That's more or less what I 
I think that's because of the fact that when the genre was in its quote-unquote heyday, was in the 30s and 40s, where people were not used to... Okay, there were a couple of things, like, um, like Cecil B. DeMille did a lot of ep- did his biblical epic-type things, but for the most... And there's, um... Yeah. Well, another one that I can yeah. Couple of those. Because you know, Metropolis, I can imagine the audience reaction at that time. Because Metropolis, as we know, is if you watch it, to all my film buffs, all my fellow film buffs, if you decide to watch it, which I'm sure a lot of you will, just understand that you'll be tempted to check the calendar here. You will. You, will, you might <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a big it's a doozy. Um, anyway, yeah, so you had a couple of those, and also I'm um, gone with the wind. There's another one where um where you know, they used to have intermissions or usual usually standard, but they don't see that very often nowadays. Um, no, you know, like gone with the wind. I know for sure. You know, there's another situation where they had an intermission, but you really don't. So I tell you to get the last one that I think. Uh, And um, a hundred minutes tops. <laughs> yeah, a yeah, hundred minutes tops. That's about as far as you. But I think that's also because of the fact that, like we said, um, the source material for the most part tended to be tend to have like like the Maltese Falcon, the, the novel. I think it clocks in at around most editions, most reprints tend to clock in at around one hundred and seventy pages. So it's not. <laughs> So there's only so much to do. I'll be right back. So if you can take over for this next okay. segment here. Okay. Yeah, guys, About when we first discovered the Maltese Falcon, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I first saw it or when I first heard about it, because I think I. Probably uh, uh, when you first saw it. We'll start with it. Okay. All right, so. Uh, I first saw it when I got it um, about five years ago now on Blu-ray because it's one of those things where streaming is working all, but only if the rights are not sat if you don't sit on the rights because that's a big part of the problem with a lot of stuff is that. This is well before you know HBO kind of got a hold of it. Yeah, well. Right. That's because HBO Max when it launched rather Yeah, so Yeah, it's just Warner Brothers. No. Don't think so. Is it first time I came across it is uh T C M. Yeah.
as I first heard about it um, when I was in um, high school English class, we were talking about what a MacGuffin was, <laughs> and that was in the and the eponymous um, statuette from the novel and movie were what was one of the. Um, it was one of the uh, examples given in the textbook. <laughs> so, yeah, a couple of those. And I feel like the novel kind of got overshadowed because, you know, the film is more depressed, obviously. It's usually you only know about the book by association with the film, <laughs> and even that's not a guarantee. <laughs> say a lot about our parent, about our parents on both sides here um, that that we were exposed to a lot of this stuff growing up or as young adults. <laughs> not as often as it should. <laughs> Also, did they touch on a couple of titles um, and just um, story? Like they touched on the like the Hercules one. They had to tone it down considerably, even from the <laughs> the Disney version. mystery scene at the time was more um, reserved than um, what the Americans were um, what the American output was so yeah see and, and even now you know that's just making scenes 
not as much. Yeah, I mean, speaking of which, where that where um where the um publisher doesn't advertise the um doesn't uh, I, I think that novels and 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 literary series need to have content ratings, <laughs> like um like uh, yeah, because like I said, because I made the mistake about a month or so ago now of getting the first installment in the Rizzoli and Isles series. <laughs> And it was, oh, yeah. It was, it was, I had no working knowledge of that franchise going in. <laughs> I haven't even seen enough of it. I've only seen like like clips of the TV adaptation from ten years ago. Um, yeah, and so I had no real working knowledge of the source material. I mean, I was expecting it to be sort of like the same level as say the Dresden Files, <laughs> which, and that was an eye opener. But, but yeah. And, and I feel like mysteries in general sometimes, they don't, whether it's film noir or not, they really don't give you an idea of, okay, this author is going to have a lot of gore in their book, or this author is going to have a lot of, you know, shall we say, visible scenes in their books. You know the ones. We, we, I'm just I'm just cleaning it up because, you know, we are a film show here. So when I say physical scenes, y'all know what I'm saying. Yep. <laughs> there's some some mystery writers barely writing, you know, scenes at all. And then some of them can't help themselves. Every book has at least one visible scene, if not more. Yeah, the, the Harry Turtle Doves of the world. <laughs> Although, admittedly, he tries to make it, um, at least make sense for the plot <laughs> most of the time anyway seen his version of Psycho, at least all the way through. I have seen the, uh, everyone knows the famous um, shower scene from that one. <laughs> Just been spoofed the hell and back. <laughs>
train next. I think that was the next one I saw. Yeah, a couple of those. Yeah, I mean, there's also, um, now we should also bring this up because we haven't done it, and I'm actually wearing a hat myself for this episode. Um, we should probably bring out the fact that there's a specific, um, subset of headwear that tends to crop up all over the place in noir settings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Pork pie, you know, all those types of things. The fedoras, yeah. Depending on the exact background, you know, I have a couple of Stetsons there too. Left memory serves a brand name. The press box because you know reporters all kind of. Yeah, with the little um, with the little um, press bags sticking out of the um, out of the band. <laughs> yeah. Because you tend to see those a lot, especially if you're trying to set up. You're either dealing with the movie set in the 1930s or 1940s, or you're trying to evoke that same feeling where you have you know, reporters and uh, flashball cameras. It's a certain type of camera they'll use to kind of really hammer home that point. The CSI crews as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> and like you said, the monochrome, because even, you know, if I have to, if I have to For the most part, if it, I mean, I think that, um, up through, let's say, the mid to late 50s, 90% of those films would be in black and white, and, um, and after that point, they could go, it depends on what the, it depends on what the camera crew wanted to do, that, how they wanted to handle it, or how the marketing team decided to, um, do it, because sometimes it's an executive decision to do it in color versus monochrome. And then, of course, you got that film, EOA, where, you know, the English teacher drinks the, you know, poison, and he, he's already, he's pretty much, and I can say this, because it doesn't spoil too much, he's already taken okay? okay, he's no longer living. Yeah. And the whole purpose of that film is to figure out, like, who did it, and why, what's their motivation for doing it. Yeah, you're right, there are a lot of who done it in, um, in this, in noir films, just by... Well, by default, really. Okay, now, all right. So, okay, we just passed the forty-minute mark of the um, conversation of the discussion phase. Okay, of the meat of this episode, and I want to keep this relatively short um, today, so we don't run the risk of what happened last time <laughs> happening again. Okay, so let's do this one. Let's get this out of the way. The homeboy noir <laughs> setup, or the homeboy oh, detective agency, or whatever. <laughs> Take stuff from the um from the coroner's van. 
Regardless of what the estate lawyers, yeah, a couple of those. Um, yeah, I mean, and and I mean, yeah, you don't really hear about. Um, and it'd also be like, and you'd probably, I can imagine them doing something like with Calhoun Tubbs as a as a witness. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I mean, and that actually brings up a good point too. Like some film awards had that bubble. Friend on the force would be the bumbling idiot, and that's why they had to bring in the private eye. <laughs> A couple of those. Actually expected that there would be a, the uh, that the love interest would be a femme fatale. <laughs> yeah, like with the you know heels and a certain curly hair more often than not because you know that's that the style they were wearing at time. Yeah, it, yeah. After flappers, but before we got straightened out again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the, the whole just red thing. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, that's a little, I mean, that's a good example of one that was, that is mostly child friendly. <laughs> that's a that's a noir. Because the whole just rap But but she was meant to be a parody or homage to that style of character, so <laughs> kind of so yeah, Disney was able to get away with that one. Yeah, and, and, and Dick Tracy uh, film adaptation that, that's questionable too. I'm talking about the '92 one. Yeah, the one with Warren Beatty. Yeah. 1990. It was right yeah, after. Was, it was right. It was right yeah. when uh, Michael Keaton was still as Batman. So it was either right on the heels of that, or right alongside um, Batman Returns. I forget which. I'm gonna say Madonna's character. You kind of is it shopping? Oh, is it? Cause Madonna never really was one to make a lot of, um, shall we say, child-friendly material, especially not that. No, but she has gotten better about it since she has. Can you please say that again? You gotta love Siri. I believe it's Seattle. Okay. All right, so what we'll do is we will end this here because I just got a little pop-up warning that we're pushing the limit. All right, so what we'll do is we have no idea when we'll do this next. We'll get our next one. Um, and like we said, um, is the reason we're doing this subject instead of the original plan is this is actually the backup for the backup for the backup of <laughs> what we were originally going to be doing. <laughs> the original plan was to do Conan first, and then Zoro was the next one after that, and then. And then the uh, fitness episode, physical fitness episode, was the backup from that one because that didn't work out. And then we have this is the, <laughs> this is the fourth. Yeah, in the line. 
Reference to one of their most um, popular segments. All right, so all right, so signing off. Take it away. Next time, people. All right.